0: Welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today's episode is probably going to be the least depressing episode of The Perspectrum in like three or four weeks.
1: Yeah, that's a, it's a great sign, except for the fact that we're still starting out by talking about uh, COVID.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the least depressing episode starts by talking about a disease that has killed almost 100,000 people in America.
1: Yeah. Yay. (laughs) Strange (laughs) times we're living in.
0: Uh, Strange times we're living in, ain't it? Seriously. Um, So, yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about COVID-19. Then we're going to discuss uh, the uh, reauthorization of the Patriot Act and some of the proposals that have failed to be added to it. Uh, And then we're going to finish up by talking about... The new task forces that have been created on the Biden team uh, to address uh, certain political issues and try to create some type of reconciliation between the Bernie wing of the Democratic Party and the more establishment wing of the Democratic Party.
1: Yeah. So to get started talking about COVID, let's do a quick update on the numbers. Um, so right now we've got 4.9 million cases worldwide, which is up 600,000 from last week, which is actually a slower, um, week over week increase from the one before, um, the one the week before that I think was 700,000, um, which is great. Uh, we've got 320,000 deaths, which is 28,000 more than last week, which is actually a significantly Slower spread or slower death rate than the week before, where we saw a 100 or a uh, 41,000 death increase week over week. So that's great. Um, in the US, we've got 1.5 million cases, which is up 100,000 more than last week. So that's actually also a slower spread. So um, for like the four weeks before that, it was increasing at about Two hundred to two hundred and ten thousand cases a week, and so a, a week with just a hundred thousand case increase is actually pretty great. Um, and we've hit ninety-two thousand deaths in the U.S., which is nine thousand more than last week, and again a bit of a slowdown. Um, and yeah, we've got three hundred and fifty-three thousand recovered in the United States. So
0: yeah, yeah, and also a reminder that. Uh Currently, the United States makes up 5% of the global population, and we have about a third of all COVID cases. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, yippee for us. I mean, (laughs) I I, I just uh, just recently, I saw this uh, Trump official on Fox News talking about American exceptionalism, how we're the greatest country in the world. I mean, as far as the number of uh, COVID-19 cases is concerned, we're there. We're
1: We're exceptional. right, Right out in front. As usual. Yeah. America. It's it's funny. Like it's, it's, it's always depressing to me when I see people or hear from people that seem to be unable to decouple the idea that they love their country from the idea that their country is perfect. Yeah. And it's just like, like what on earth are you talking about? Like,
0: I, I like to, I like to think of it like this, you know, think of it like loving your kid. You know, my parents, they love me and they'll Mm -hmm. love me no matter what. But if I'm doing something stupid, they're going to tell me. Yes. Like they'll chastise me. They'll be like, Nathan, hey, get out of that tree. You're going to fall and die. Sure. You know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean,
1: yeah. If you if you like really are passionate about something and you like care about it a great deal, to your point, you want to make it good. You want to make it great. So it's it's the
0: difference between patriotism and nationalism. Yes. Patriotism is love for one's country. And when you love something, you try to take care of it. And the best way to take care of it is to point out the flaws and do your best in order to fix them. Mm -hmm. Nationalism, on the other hand, is the idea that your country is superior and that you should feel superior because you are a part of that country. So by definition, the way that nationalism has to function is by ignoring the flaws and totally. pretending they're not there or even trying to minimize them as much as you can. So yeah. this is why we're patriots. We're not nationalists.
1: Yeah, and and the corollary to that is that like nationalism tends to be an exclusionary worldview. We yeah. are special, so we belong to this country and everybody else doesn't, whereas patriotism is perfectly compatible with like a generous and productive immigration policy and like diversity and development and progress.
0: Yeah. 100%.
1: So after that, uh, bit of a minor digression on the subject of trying to make our country a little better, um, the house attempted to make things a little bit better by trying to do another round of stimulus to help out COVID. Um, so Nathan, where do we, where do we stand on that right now?
0: Well, the Stimulus Act, which is referred to as the Heroes Act, did end up passing the House, um, but there are a lot of things that it did not include that a lot of uh, uh, a lot of more left wing politicians were calling for, and and a lot of economists were saying were necessary. Um, there is no paycheck guarantee provision in the uh, in the stimulus. Mm. Um, there will not be recurring. Stimulus checks. So there were a lot of politicians like uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, Ed Markey, um, uh, Pramila Jayapal, Ro Khanna, um, uh, Kamala Harris, who were calling for a, a $2,000 m- monthly stimulus checks in order to uh, keep America, keep money in Americans' pockets, so that they actually are able to get through this. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't included. Instead, there is another one-time payment of $1,200 for individuals and uh, $2,400 um, for uh, uh, for joint filers. Um, one one difference between the first one is the fact that in the first one, uh, families got $600 per child. Mm-hmm. In this one, families will be getting $1,200 per uh, child with a maximum of uh, 6,000. So if you have a certain amount of kids, you're not just going to keep getting money. Gotcha. Um, Which, you know, I don't know if that makes sense or not. Um, But anyways, it would be a one-time payment. Mm -hmm. Now... One, issue, one other issue with that is the fact that there are a lot of people that haven't received their stimulus checks from the first package, mm-hmm. and a, a huge reason for that happening is because um, there weren't any—there th- weren't a lot of— uh, 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 provisions to make sure that, uh, the funds got to individuals both quickly and accurately. And there Mm. were, there was a proposal for, uh, improvements on that in the included into this bill. And those didn't end up getting added. Um, there's no automatic stabilizers included into the bill. Um, and overall it's extremely limited in scope. And the worst part is it's almost certainly not going to pass the Senate because majority leader Mitch McConnell of the Senate has already said that this is just a big laundry list of pet priorities and yeah pet
1: priorities like making sure people can afford housing and food and healthcare yeah, all
0: those little exactly, things exactly <laughs> yeah i just i just imagine Mitch McConnell like sitting on the the throne as Isma and Emperor's new groove <laughs> and just being like it is no concern of mine if your family has what was it again? Um, food.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so let's put this a little bit into perspective also. So, you know, um, not not including this upcoming stimulus package, which won't necessarily pass. In fact, almost definitely won't pass. Because even if it gets past the Senate, um, the Trump administration has, has basically said that it's dead on arrival. Yeah. Um, but so far, the... Total stimulus in response to COVID in the US has been about 14 percent of GDP. So first of all that is enormous. like we don't want to downplay how much has been put into the economy. Now we've we've discussed in the past some of the weaknesses of where exactly that was allocated um, but let's let's talk about that in comparison to some other countries. So you know Germany has has put together a total stimulus package of 60 percent of GDP which is, like, astoundingly outrageous. But at the same time, like, they are doing that in order to be able to support their people throughout the the pandemic. Um, South Korea has put together a stimulus of 25% of GDP. Australia has uh, 16.4% of GDP. Um, Even the UK has put together a stimulus, 21% of their GDP. And, you know, we are... Ahead of Spain, which is at 12% and Singapore at 12%, um, and Sweden, which is kind of ad hoc, but like, you know, we've done a fair amount, but to Nathan's point, like it's not ongoing and it's not at this point, the package is like almost ad hoc. Like we've spent a lot of that money and we're still kind of trying to like stay above water. So You know, more stimulus is almost definitely needed and putting in the right spot makes all the difference. So while we're on the subject of talking about how the U.S. compares to other countries, um, we want to just dig in with a little bit more detail about our coronavirus response and kind of how it compares and how other countries, the lessons that some other countries have learned that we could learn from as well. Um, So first of all, a uh, a team of researchers at Oxford recently put together an index which has, which tracks the stringency of of governmental restrictions um, compared to their COVID case count. Um, So basically, it's a way to normalize the um, government restriction response um, for case counts. So theoretically, you'd want to tailor your response to how many cases you have, so Um, in order to compare across countries, it makes sense to kind of normalize for that. Um, And so what we see is that if you graph it over time, you see that the US got a much slower start um, than other countries and also topped out limitations at kind of a lower level. Um, So we've got basically a higher case count with fewer restrictions than countries like Italy and China and France and South Korea. Um, And... That's like it's a big challenge because not only was the response slower, but we're also, you know, doing less to, um, you know, prevent the spread of the disease overall, even though um, opponents of like uh, social distancing and and, um, lockdowns and stuff would have you believe that we're doing way too much. But you can see it reflected in our case count that, you know, we're pretty far behind. You know, and and according to the advisory board, which is a consultancy, um, one of the most important indicators of a successful response is, as we've talked about in the past, um, really extensive contact tracing. So this was effective in Hong Kong and South Korea. But in the U.S., we obviously have a pretty strong aversion to surveillance, although apparently not as strong as we would all hope for, as we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, And so, like, a lot of the tracking is decentralized it's done on a state-by-state basis um, and is not really coordinated and therefore it's like less effective overall and it's also often voluntary which is a huge barrier to um, you know coverage which like you could debate whether that makes sense or not but it definitely means that contract tracing is going to be less extensive than you would hope but this also only works if you have really comprehensive testing which we do not um, cause yeah. like you can't very well contact trace if you don't know who's infected. And so this is one le- lesson that like Singapore learned. So they had like really comprehensive testing early on. They had uh, contact tracing and lockdown procedures and a, and a really effective tech response. Um, but then they let the testing su- slide and saw a huge second wave. And by the time they got the testing ramped up again, um, they had the highest case count in Southeast Asia.
0: And some other important points to make about uh, overall testing, especially within the United States, Uh, there has been this claim that has been circulating uh, specifically by Donald Trump about um, how the United States has tested more people than any other country. (laughs) And that's true. That is 100% true. The United States has tested more people. However, it is important to recognize that that's not a per capita measurement, Now, when we are looking at per capita measurements, the United States isn't necessarily doing a bad job per se, but they're definitely not surpassing people on a significant level. So, for example, when we're talking about the total number of COVID tests, and this is uh, per 1,000 people, the United States has tested 34.74, whereas uh, Denmark, who currently has the most people tested, has tested... Uh, Mm -hmm. 67.11 people. So the United States isn't necessarily doing a bad job with testing, Mm -hmm. but we're not doing the most. Like we're not exceptional in this case.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately like, that's the thing. This is a really hard thing to respond to scaling, testing, scaling investment in healthcare and infrastructure is difficult to do really fast. um, Which is why timing is so key. You see it again and again that countries that were, you know, proactive and had a strong response up front are significantly better off than countries that even waited a few weeks um, before really having a strong response. Um,
0: So testing is extremely important, but there's also the next step, which you need. One of the criticisms that we've lobbed at the Trump administration is the fact that he waited quite a while to uh, invoke the Defense Production Act and we have been short supplies now all of this isn't to say when when we're saying that we're doing okay on testing that's not to say that we're good on testing we still do need to have more testing and there are Mm -hmm. a lot of um there are a lot of recommendations for how much we need to up that yeah um but another point to uh, another thing to point out is the fact that we need more testing because we have more cases yes which is kind of funny, because Trump actually made a very insightful point about that just the other day, Michael. What, what did he say?
1: So Trump came out with, with just a really um, impressive grasp of the facts. Um, and he said that, quote, And don't forget, we have more cases than anybody, than anybody in the world. But why? Because we do more testing. And then he clarified, when you test, you have a case. When you test, you find something is wrong with people. If you didn't do any testing, you would have very few cases. <laughs> and so obviously he's getting mixed up between cases that exist and cases that can are confirmed. Fewer yeah. people don't die just because you don't test them.
0: <laughs> I mean, Michael, if we stopped collecting data on the amount of people killed by drunk drivers, then drunk driving would be the lowest cause of death in the United States yes, at an all
1: time <laughs> low. <laughs> and so, so it's funny. Cause like, you know, you might respond to that and say like, well, obviously he's talking just about testing and like us in comparison to other countries. And so, you know, what he really meant was other countries should be doing more testing so that our numbers are more comparable. And so that, you know, they are up to standard, which everybody should be doing more testing if that's what he's going for kudos to him but he actually went on to say it could be the testing's frankly overrated maybe it's overrated so he was literally just saying i don't like testing because it makes my numbers look bad (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) which is like which is like his been his whole response to this thing like let's not live in the real world, let's live in the world as interpreted by media news outlets.
0: His God, Trump surrogates must hate it when he clarifies his points. (laughs) Like he 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 just makes these nonsensical points Mm -hmm. that could be taken in a lot of different ways, but then he clarifies them to be exactly the opposite of what surrogates were forming in their head of like, oh, okay, I know my defense for them and he's like, but I'm not talking about this. And they're like, oh god damn it.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. But but another important point in all of this is that we are at one point in the narrative or the trajectory of this disease, right? Like where we are today is different from where we were a month ago and is hopefully different from where we'll be in a few weeks. And where we'll be in the future is going to be totally determined by what actions we're taking now, which is why... Um, You know, all of the calls for reopening are so nerve wracking because, like, we are just starting to get to the point where we might have a bit of a handle on this thing. And if we start walking things back now, um, we could be in for a really rough road ahead. And we've seen a number of countries with second waves. um, And, you know, a lot of people in the US have been saying that we should be like Sweden. Um, and so we wanted to break that claim down a little bit so that we can understand, you know, whether it has any merit, whether what Sweden is doing makes sense, um, and whether it would work in the United States. Um, so Sweden, during, like, the worst um, rate increase of their, like, first wave, um, even even then... Did some pretty minimal restrictions. They they banned gatherings of 50 or more people, which is which is like five times the number that we typically have in the United States. So often states are banning gatherings of 10 or more. Um, and while they closed um, some schools, they closed school gymnasiums and things like that, and they moved to some online learning. Um, most businesses were still open. You know, pubs, gyms, restaurants. All still open um, so they were so this seemed like very strange to you know a lot of people around the world because that seemed like a non-interested response and so a lot of people levied claims against them that they were financing the support of their economy with their the lives of their um, their people is that true then so so basically rather than sh- shutting down um, the Swedes believed that they could actually trust the public to kind of police themselves, and could, you know, if they needed to, could quickly turn the, you know, to lockdown if necessary if their healthcare system got overrun. So far, their healthcare system has has not been overrun, um, which is which is great, um, and it is potentially a point of support for their, um, you know, response. But there are a few things that make Sweden pretty special. Um, And also it's even with these special things, it's not totally clear that their strategy is working. So first of all, over 50% of the population lives in single person households. So that's enormous because you're often exposed. um, It like makes its way into your home via like one member of the household and then infects everybody. And then, you know, those people are additional touch points. It's like, Cutting down those touch points is key. And so the fact that people already live alone um, it makes a big difference. Um, also, they have a higher-than-average rate of people who work from home already. Um, and another big thing is that citizens actually trust their government in Sweden. Um, <laughs> so when the, when the government told them to social distance, they actually did. So in, in Stockholm, um, like, mobility, like, traveling around is down an estimated 75%, even without, like police enforced restrictions um Trusting and according to your government yeah i didn't realize that was an option yeah i mean <laughs> and it's borne out in the data too <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. according to one study like 70 percent of people in sweden um have a high degree of trust in their government to compare wow. to the united states where 17 uh, percent of people think they can trust their government to do what's right <laughs> it's just like, it's like abysmal <laughs> yeah at the same time, so, so they have a, a few, like, structural things that mean that their society is closer to social distancing than ours is, right? So, like, it's less of a behavior change to get there. Um, but that being said, their mortality rate is much higher than neighboring countries. Um, so, you know, currently they have um, a mortality rate of their population of 3,582 people per 10 million people, which is a mortality rate of 0.04% of the population, which is like 10 times higher than some of their neighbors. Um, And partially this is because their population is generally older. um, So 20% of their population is above 65 years old compared to like 16% of the U.S. So, you know, overall an older population.
0: So just to be clear, though, Their mortality rate is significantly higher than all of the countries surrounding them. Yeah, that's right. So, so these are the so this is the model that uh, Republican politicians are saying we should follow.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And like, it's it's kind of weird. Like, one thing people are pointing to is that like they might be able to reach herd immunity faster. Um, Yeah. So, like, one estimate puts Stockholm at reaching herd immunity by June. So that's, you know, where about 40 to 60% of their population has some kind of immunity to the disease. But that's also, like, you know, just Stockholm. So, like, you know, okay, let's think that through. Stockholm reaches herd immunity, starts opening things up again. People from outside Stockholm go in because now they can actually do things in Stockholm. They are not immune, have the disease, spread it around in Stockholm. And like very quickly yeah. you get this situation where it's like the restrictions are unraveling because the herd immunity is too fragile.
0: Yeah. Well, and also a few other points to that. So um and and just to be clear, like this is definitely something that I I'm open having my mind changed on if the numbers do end up panning out this way. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so the argument is they might reach herd immunity faster, which means that even though they have a higher mortality rate right now, it's possible that their overall number after all this is over is going to end up being a lot lower than other people. It's just, they had more deaths concentrated in a um, smaller amount of time. Mm -hmm. And if that does happen, then, you know, I'm, again, I'm definitely willing to have my mind changed if that's how the numbers pan out. Yeah. But, there are some other points that I think we need to look at for that. For example, one of the biggest reasons in the United States why we were talking about flattening the curve was because of hospital resources. Mm-hmm. So if more people end up having the virus at once, then more people end up dying than might might have because we're stretched thin on hospital resources. If more people have more access to hospital resources because there's only a certain amount of people who are infected at once, then less people are going to end up dying. Mm -hmm. So the whole, like, let's just bull rush this approach, I really don't see that being effective.
1: Yeah. Especially not in the United States, you know, where we have... Comparatively fewer hospital resources per capita. So yeah. in Sweden, they've got a, a 4.1 doctors per thousand people, um, whereas that's a good point. Yeah. Whereas in the U.S., we've got 2.6 per thousand people. So you know,
0: wait a minute. But I thought I thought having a single payer healthcare system would disincentivize people from becoming doctors. That's what that's what the Republicans told me.
1: You're right. It it it's a it's a terrible system. Um, and it definitely doesn't translate to the ability to deal with uh, <laughs> a pandemic. <laughs> I mean, look at Italy <laughs> so yeah. so basically the takeaway is that Sweden is doing is approaching this differently from other people, but the outcomes are pretty similar in that you know they are still social distancing. They're just doing it in a more voluntary basis because they can actually trust their public to social distance themselves. Um, and they're better able to deal with hospital capacity because remember, flattening the curve is all about getting the peak case number at any given time to be below hospital capacity. If you raise that hospital capacity, you can have a higher peak, um, thus shortening but but increasing the height of the curve, um, but, you know, and, and still have relatively fewer deaths, but it's also not all roses and sunshine. So even though they haven't had to shut down things quite as much, um, there are still estimates that unemployment could get as high as 20 to 30%, which is similar to what we may be expected to see in the United States. So if people are thinking that like the Sweden model is like the way forward It's possible that the numbers pan out that way, ultimately, Um, but there isn't, like, compelling evidence to say that that's definitely the right way to go right now. Um, And with, you know, 320 million lives to bet on the subject, um, personally, I'd I'd vie for more conservative measures rather than more liberal ones, and I certainly don't trust the public to police themselves.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, one last point that I want to make about COVID-19 is I want to talk a little bit about this new insane method that the Trump administration is using in order to detract attention. So some of you might have been hearing the term thrown around the Internet, the, the Internet, uh, Obamagate. Uh, Trump apparently tweeted about it like um, in his crazy barrage of 136 tweets um on mother's day
1: 136 on mother's
0: day yeah that's what yeah man Um, melania
1: could not get more neglected
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah no you apparently was talking about obamagate instead of uh, melania that's i mean he i'm sure that melania had to be in some of those i'm sure (laughs) sure I have no evidence to back that up. Yeah. It was probably it's probably like, gotta be.
1: Melania agrees that Obama's terrible. I mean, he
0: he had to have had at least one advisor say, hey, you should probably say at least one thing about Melania on Mother's Day. Just saying. Um, but anyway... Well, th- well,
1: did you see that in one interview, someone asked him about like what his advice was for mothers? Oh, and he yeah. Starts, and then like, he
0: started talking about the military. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> like, what? They're insane. Yeah, yeah. Just not realize that, huh? Mm. Uh, but yeah, so... He's been unleashing the hashtag Obamagate, but he doesn't really explain what it is. So a lot of people were trying to figure out what it was. Uh, A reporter even asked him about it in a press conference to which he responded by saying, it's been going on a long time. It's been going on from before I got elected, and it's a disgrace that it happened. If you look at what's gone on, and if you look at now all this information that's been released, and from what I understand, that's only the beginning. Some terrible things happen, and it should never be allowed to happen to our country again. <laughs> so that's, that's not really an answer. Um, so the reporter then asked him to clarify, like, okay, but what specific crime are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And he responded by saying, you know what the crime is. The crime is very obvious to everybody. All you have to do is read the newspaper, except yours. Oh, my. So, so that's not an answer either. So I was actually I actually was trying to figure out because I was honestly trying to figure out, okay, what is Obamagate? What is your criticism of Obama? And uh, after doing some digging, it appears that after the fact, Trump supporters and, um, and Trump surrogates are trying to latch on to the idea that um, the conspiracy theory of Obamagate, is basically that the Obama administration was trying, to, uh, was trying to work with multiple intelligence services and they were trying to basically plant the theory that Trump was colluding with Russia in order to win the 2016 election, which, I mean, hell of a good that did. Um, <laughs> and also they said that they were working with members of the anti-Trump deep state Whoa. In order to uh, basically spy on and frame people within Trump's inner circle, and one example, one prominent example of that is uh, Michael Flynn. So the Obama administration framed Michael Flynn, apparently. Sure, framed now, him all the forget. way into confessing. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and pleading guilty. <laughs> so, so that's the accusation. He has given no evidence of this. No evidence has surfaced about this. Um, it's just this crazy conspiracy theory that he apparently couldn't even describe himself. I actually I can't believe I did a better job of explaining his own conspiracy theory than he did. I can't. Um, it is completely an attempt to try to derail the conversation to distract us away from his terrible COVID-19 response. Again, I'll keep saying this. We make up 5% of the world's population and a third of overall COVID cases. Mm -hmm. We are sucking at this. And a huge part of it is our leadership. Trump is doing an abysmal job. If he ever starts doing a good job, I'll give him credit for it. But as long as he keeps doing a crappy job, I'm going to keep calling him an idiot and telling him he's doing a crappy job.
1: Oh, but Nathan, don't you mean Obama's doing a crappy job? (laughs)
0: Exactly. (laughs) And he, he even, he even tried to compare his handling of COVID to Obama's handling of the swine flu. So first off, he was talking about, oh, because I did the early ban of people from China. It's like, oh, I'm getting great marks on COVID-19. First off, apparently most of the cases that have surfaced in the United States actually came from Europe and not from China. And we still ended up getting, and we we still ended up making up a third of all cases. Mm -hmm. So a hell of good that did. Um, And secondly, so let's let's compare his record on the swine flu. So over 90,000 people have died so far of COVID-19. And keep in mind, we're in May, all right? We're only like five months into the year. In swine flu... About 12,500 people died of it throughout the course of an entire year. Mm -hmm. So you want to compare them? There's the comparison. You're doing a crappy job. Those are facts. Facts over feelings, man.
1: So now it's time for one of our higher point
0: segments, Tips for Good. So Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good? Well, Michael, we do Tips for Good every week because we like to give our audience some very simple things that they can do in their life, simple changes that they can incorporate into their everyday routines in order to try to make the world a little bit of a better place, because that's ultimately the goal of this podcast, to make the world a better place. So Michael, what is our tip for good this week?
1: Our tip for good this week is to hold the right people accountable. Um, And so to explain exactly what we mean by that, I want to walk you guys through how kind of it came about. So we were planning for this episode and talking about tips for good and coming up with ideas. And, you know, I suggested a few things and they all had one common problem. They all were focused on the individual action of, you know, people like you and me, when really the drivers of the problem were large corporations, leaders, uh, political leaders taking bad action and then pointing to consumers to fix their problems. So one of the big ones I suggested was, hey, why don't we, um, you know, make sure that we are focused, like, are taking the lessons of conservation that we've, you know, learned from COVID and extend them out um, after all this crisis is over. And Nathan's response was very appropriately, well, we're not really doing anything. It's actually the fact that, you know, huge corporations are not, you know, producing nearly as much and fossil fuel is not being used consumed at such a high rate um, and, you know, all of these other causes. And so really we need to – and so the tip this week is basically to try to avoid cases where, you know, we are putting the blames on each other, or accepting blame ourselves, and scapegoating ourselves really when other people are responsible.
0: Yeah. Now that doesn't mean that you can't take any actions. Uh, so let's one one other example that um, I brought up with Michael when we had this conversation was littering. So uh, the concept of the word litter bug, you know, the campaign against you know anti anti littering, um, that was actually created. Uh, by the, um, the bottle industry, because they had moved on, a lot of a lot of uh, bottle making companies, bottle water making companies had moved from uh, reusable plastic bottles to non-reusable ones, which are significantly worse for the environment and ended up um, contributing a lot of plastic waste. And their whole thing was like, okay, so, we're destroying the environment by doing this, but here's how we fix it. Mm -hmm. Let's coin the term litter bug in order to make it so that the problem isn't the fact that we're producing a product that has created significantly more waste. The problem is, is if people don't put that waste in the right place. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't mean that you should go littering everywhere, but what it does mean is you also need to make sure that um, you are taking the next step and saying that we need to fight for uh, better regulations, better environmental regulations against corporations that make products that end up going to waste in the environment.
1: Yeah, totally. And you know, ultimately, we as consumers have a certain set of choices that we are able to take advantage of, right? Like if you are in need of water and there's no water fountain, or anything like that, even if you're very prepared, you may just need to buy a water bottle. And like, that's, you know, it's just part of the world you live in. Recognizing that you can take good action, but that the best you can do won't scratch the surface of the harm that, that, you know, much more powerful organizations are doing is really important. And making that part of the everyday conversation is going to be really important for, you know, leveraging us to the right place
0: and that's tips for good so on wednesday
1: the senate voted down an amendment uh, to the patriot act that would have limited the government's ability to perform secret and warrantless surveillance of your internet search and browsing history so as privacy dies and the fbi is listening
0: (laughs) yep Um, And what's interesting about it is this was actually a counterproposal to an amendment by our favorite senator, Mitch McConnell, Mm -hmm. um, where he proposed an amendment to the Patriot Act that would have actually specifically made it so that the Department of Justice, which, by the way, is currently overseen by Attorney General Bill Barr, and this is all according to the Business Insider, um, could look through anybody's browsing history without the approval of a judge if they deem the browsing history relevant to an investigation.
1: Up until this point has been implicitly included already. So you know, anytime you have a request for surveillance um, that you have made the case is potentially part of a, ongoing investigation you can go to the uh, like a secret fisa court um and they will almost certainly rubber stamp your approval to get phone records and internet browsing history but mitch mcconnell would have made that an enshrined part of the patriot act that in uh, internet browsing and search history was in bounds.
0: yeah so that's super authoritarian
1: yeah let's start and,
0: there and uh, yeah it's a blatant violation of the fourth amendment now let, let one, one point that I would make about that. So a lot of people mm. point out the fact that the founding fathers could not have anticipated the internet. And how different that could potentially change the legal landscape of the United States and the world as a whole. And this is actually one of the reasons why most of the time uh, constitutional originalists are full of crap because the constitution was specifically designed in a way mm-hmm. to be amended because they knew that things were going to change. So but even if we do want to take a constitutional originalist interpretation of the cons- of the 4th amendment, the spirit of the 4th amendment is clearly to protect your privacy. And in fact, the right of privacy, although not explicitly yeah. stated in the constitution, has been upheld as an implication in several court cases
1: yeah exactly and so so it, it you know the right of privacy has been you know defined and implied in the constitution and found in the constitution by the united states supreme court which means that it is the law of the land this is the highest court in the land and when they have determination and make a determination that is um, the law but I think, I think it's worth noting that you don't even have to go all the way to a right of privacy to say that the Patriot Act and, and the warrantless observation of your Internet history is almost certainly a violation of, of the Fourth Amendment explicitly. So here's the text of the Fourth Amendment. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. So yeah, it doesn't specifically reference the internet, but you're talking about a person's, like, a person, their papers, their effects, like, basically your private sphere cannot be searched without probable cause. And that, you know, the warrant for that search has to be specific and limited. Um, And so, so on like every level, the unmitigated and un, um, you know, restricted observation and surveillance of, of citizens of the United States that have, no suspicion of of having committed a crime, have not been um, found to have probable cause of committing a crime, um, is like is is totally out of bounds, explicitly so by the text.
0: of The common argument here is, well, if you have nothing to hide, then what do you have to fear? To which I would then I would then propose the the counter question of, okay, so does that mean that if a police officer decides to just come into your house uninvited? and just ramsack through your things search through all of your things are you okay with that and so yeah let's think
1: about this like so so the obviously challenging case is which which that you know argument is meant to suss out is that you know if someone is committing a crime don't we want to be able to figure it out and know it but the the challenge of that is that when you allow the unfettered observation and surveillance of non-criminal people of and people that have not been you know it, that have not been observed in the commission of a crime you open yourself up and you provide the infrastructure for incredible levels of authoritarianism and control and ultimately like big brother is watching yeah exactly and ultimately like The ability to have a sphere of your life outside of government observation is a really important part of the United States and our ability to act as like civil actors and even, you know, have civil disobedience. Like, let's I mean, let's think about like sodomy laws. Let's think about all the cases in the United States where the observance of someone's private sphere would have led to the unjust prosecution of laws that should never have been in place in the first place. And only the fact that people were protected by being in their own home allowed them to, like, you know, live their lives appropriately, you know? For for the longest time, you know, birth control was illegal until the right of privacy was established in Griswold v. Connecticut, you know? Um, Yeah, like, being homosexual was illegal in most parts of the United States until Lawrence v. Texas. And you know, all of these were specifically, the only limitation on the ability of the police to indiscriminately prosecute these unjust laws was the privacy of our own homes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, although one 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 thing that I might sort of counteract with that, like if I want to play devil's advocate, mm-hmm. is wouldn't the argument then be to target the unjust laws... And not necessarily the mef- method of surveillance. So, like in a perfect world where things like things that shouldn't be illegal are legal, so like where there's no such thing as sodomy laws, um, and I guess I, I guess the new thing in our era would probably mm-hmm. be like the use of marijuana, um, which should yeah. not be illegal, and with go- uh, with a higher amount of government yeah. surveillance, more people using that in the privacy of their own home could potentially be prosecuted. Would the solution then be to wouldn't the solution then be to make it so that those laws are not on the books to begin with rather than the surveillance laws. And, and my, my argument
1: to that is like one, yeah. our system is very far from perfect. And so like the ability to act without harming anyone else in a way that is private. Um, like it's almost like this is going to sound a little bit weird, but it's almost like license to violate yeah. laws that only affect you. And in a way, that seems like a pretty reasonable limitation on laws in general. Like if you are literally taking an action that has no impact except on yourself, totally victimless crimes, which are much more common in the private sphere, you know, it seems like a pretty reasonable built in, uh, you know, limitation on laws themselves, which enables you to write laws that are fairly broad without the um, likelihood of, of violating someone's personal space and personal rights, yeah, you know?
0: that makes sense to me. So clearly the McConnell proposal is a violation of civil liberties. Um, unfortunately, the, so there was a proposal by uh, Democratic Senator uh, uh, Ron Wydan, I don't know if I pronounced that right, and uh, Republican Senator Steve Daines um, to propose an amendment that would make it so that the FBI would have to obtain a warrant before accessing people's web browsing history. So up until now, as Michael said er, said earlier, neither the need for a warrant or a lack of a warrant is explicitly laid out within the Patriot Act or within laws in general. So Mm -hmm. this would clarify, no, you're not allowed to do that anymore. And the amendment failed on Wednesday by one vote. And 10 Democrats, 10 Democrats voted against it. And two of those Democrats are Mark Warner and Tim Kaine. For those of you that don't know, Michael and I are both from Virginia. Both of our Democratic senators that we have both voted for in the past, they Mm -hmm. voted against that amendment. And when
1: we say against, that means that they voted to uphold the ability for the government to monitor without a warrant and surveil your internet search and browsing. It is
0: important to recognize that when it does, although more Republicans voted uh, against it than Democrats, it was like, it was like 20 Republicans voted against it. um, And then uh, like 10 Democrats voted against it. um, it, They needed 60 votes in order to pass. Um, Mm -hmm. Even considering that fact, this is still a bipartisan issue meaning yeah. that there are lots of people from both parties that are 100% wrong about this. And there are lots of people from both parties that are 100% right about this. And you know what? I lo- I would love to give mad credit to, uh, both, uh, Ron Wyden, um, and Steve Daines, who Steve Daines is a Republican, uh, for proposing this mm-hmm. amendment.
1: Um, yeah. and honestly, they both have good re- like, they both have reasons that really would appeal to their party parties for trying to do this. Like, um, Danes was specifically calling out trying to, un, like, prevent the FBI from from doing, like, a, an Obamagate type <laughs> thing where they're, like, you know, digging into um, an opposing administration without just yeah. cause. Which is, you know, something we really would like to prevent. Yeah. Like, you know, having an appropriate investigation into Trump has been a good thing, and it should have, you know, probably gone further than it even did. But we would like to prevent our systems of justice from being leveraged against political opponents. That's like a fundamental
0: part of yeah. our justice system. Yeah, the Department of Justice, as we said last week, needs to serve the presidency, not the president. Um, mm-hmm. And also, uh, another thing that I would like to point out in this, um, I would like to call out another senator who missed this vote. Now, remember, mm-hmm. this they only needed one more vote and this amendment would have passed. I would like to call out Senator Bernie Sanders. You know, my favorite Senator. He was not there. He did not show up for it. And, um, so far, and he didn't say where he was. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I don't know where he was. It's possible that Mm -hmm. he could have missed it because of COVID related reasons. I have no idea, but, um, so far he's been reached out to. And uh, he has refused to comment on why he was not there. Um, mm-hmm. and if he was there, then this might have passed. So what the hell, Bernie? Like, yeah, seriously, do your thing, you know, and again this this goes back to the fact that Michael and I we care about policy like we we don't care about the person we care about policy, and if a person that we regularly like does something that gets in the way of good policy, we're gonna call him out so. Bernie, get your crap together, man. And yeah, if
1: you're listening <laughs> yeah. and you know you are. And also give <laughs> us an
0: explanation like why the hell weren't you there? You are one of the few people that voted against the Patriot Act in the first place. So naturally, yeah. this is the th- this amendment specifically goes for what you stand for. So why the hell did you miss the vote?
1: Yeah. Seriously. One thing I did want to ask you about Nathan before we before we like move on from this topic at all. So one my immediate thought was I wonder if one argument for why this would be okay is that private companies like Google and Facebook via, you know, their user agreements are able to access your internet and browsing history anyway. So like in a way maybe the government is trying to get equal footing to you know, these private no, companies. The
0: government is a public entity. Those are private entities. You already signed the agreement on those private entities. Now, that doesn't mean that if you want to try to change the way that they surveil their own customers, um, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do that. I, actually, I absolutely believe that we should do what we can in order to change that. But at the end of the day, mm-hmm. you agreed to do that. You signed the contract. Yeah. In the case of law enforcement, the contract is the Constitution. And they're violating their side of the contract, and that's not okay.
1: Yeah, I think you're totally right. I think you're totally right. And we are. like Literally, the government is taking steps to help protect our privacy and our private information from private companies, and yet they're trying to expand their ability to access it. So if you do live in Virginia and you want to yell at Tim Kaine and Mark Warner for voting (laughs) against this amendment, Which I plan on doing. uh, Tim (laughs) yes yeah i will be doing that tomorrow uh kane's phone number is 202-224-4024 and warner's number is 202-224-2023
0: and if you live in one of the states where any of the other democrats or republicans um uh voted against this bill or hell if you if you live in a state where uh, you have a senator that voted for the amendment, you know, call them to praise them. Yeah. Um, so, totally. uh, so we need to we need to be vigilant about this. We need to be activists about this. It's not okay for the mm-hmm. government to uh, have this much power over surveying our lives, and we can't let them chip away at the Constitution just because the creators did not envision what the internet might mean to law enforcement. <laughs>
1: So now it's time for one of our favorite segments. Ass hat of, of the week. week.
0: So, Nathan, who is our ass hat this week? Well, Michael, our ass hat this week is Senator Richard Burr. Isn't that the guy that shot Hamilton? No, no, actually, that, that was Aaron Burr.
1: Mm. Sir. Mm-hmm. Different, um, different different guy. Diff- yeah and i think <laughs> would be an asset though top 10 asset yeah
0: definitely definitely would be an <laughs> asset <laughs> um so richard burr is was the chair of the senate intelligence committee and uh he has been accused of insider trading so apparently while he was telling his constituents that the us response to the novel coronavirus is under control He sold more than a million dollars worth of stock. Now (laughs) it is currently illegal for members of Congress to use the knowledge that they have that is not open to the public in order to benefit themselves financially, because Mm. it should work for us.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Could you imagine how lucrative it would be to just be able to use like state secrets to (laughs) invest?
0: Well, well, and also, like when I when I first heard this story, one of my first reactions, and actually, uh, uh, Kyle Kalinske made this point as well, was, wait, why are people in Congress allowed to have stocks on Wall Street?
1: Mm, like a like, conflict of interest that's, point.
0: Yeah, that seems like a conflict of interest. Mm. I mean.
1: Yeah. Like you should, you could have stocks, but they have to be in like escrow or managed by someone that you're not connected to or something. Yeah. And that's true. Like for the most part, these people are not on etrade.com, like managing their own stocks. Someone else is doing it, but that doesn't bar them from being able to call up their stock guy and Hey, say like, Hey, the world is about to freaking shut down.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, but but the funniest thing about this, and the big reason why he is our asshat this week, because there have been a few people in Congress that have been accused of that, including, mm-hmm. including a Democrat from California, Diane Feinstein.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so the reason why he is uniquely an asshat is the law that I mentioned. So it was proposed in uh, 2012 under the Obama administration, and. He was a senator at the time, and he was one of only three senators who voted against it. That's and gotta, he bragged about how brave it was.
1: <laughs> That's got to get you on some kind of list. It's got to be like a subsection of the law that anybody that votes against this law like, has to be monitored, because they're yeah. probably going to try to violate it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> No, it's it's insane. It's like he basically he told us who he was back then and we should have believed him. Mm-hmm. Um, This this should come as no surprise to anybody. This is pure corruption, but he's stepping down, right? He's he's he, headed he, out. He, well, he's stepping down and apparently he's going to be replaced by Marco Rubio or as, Ooh, as uh, Donald, Donald <laughs> Trump calls him uh, little Marco. He missed out on Marky
1: Mark. Are you joking? He is oh, an there's idiot. <laughs> al- there's
0: already a Marky Mark. there's I know, already that. a Marky Mark. <laughs> no, I think <laughs> Little Marco is great. I mean, I mean, I, I I hate the fact that it's you know the president of the United States uh, who's being childish like that. But I mean, I do have to give him credit. Little Marco is a. I mean, that's a great name. It just you, rolls off the tongue perfectly. It, he is an expert bully. He's very good at it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So anyway, congratulations to this corrupt Hamilton-killing butthole (laughs) for being our asshat of of the week. week. (laughs) All right, and so for our last segment, we are going to do something we haven't done super often in the past and say... Good on you, Biden.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, before we start this segment, um, the caveat that Michael and I have uh, agreed to do every time we talk about Joe Biden, uh, let's not forget that there is still an outstanding sexual assault allegation against Joe Biden. um, And we do strongly encourage people to uh, look it up, look up information. There has been uh, a little bit more investigating that has happened that have kind of it has kind of turned up a little bit more evidence to support both sides. Um, And we we will probably do another deep dive into some of the new evidence that have, that has come up and some of the new investigations that have come up. Um, But we do want to make sure that people recognize that uh, there, that allegation still does exist. And to keep that in mind when we talk about Joe Biden and another caveat to that caveat is uh, the current president, president Trump has been accused by like, Dozens of women of sexual assault. So, and he's actually admitted to it. So, uh, take it as you will. Um, so let's talk about policy specifically. Let's talk about the new task force that, uh, the Biden campaign has put together in order to suggest policy priorities to the democratic national platform and the Biden campaign. Yeah. So as it stands This is part of an effort that he has made in order to try to uh, reconcile some of the more, uh, you know, left, some of the people in the left flank of the Democratic Party in the Sanders wing um, with the people in his own wing of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I would I would say good on him for that. Um, I think that he does see the writing on the wall. He does realize that uh, on policy wise, the Democratic Party is far more with Bernie Sanders and honestly the country as a whole is far more with Bernie Sanders uh, than a lot of people like to let on to. So he does see the writing on that wall Mm -hmm. and, um, and he has recognized that. So here is this, here are the steps that he has taken thus far. So he has created uh, six joint task forces for uh, six different areas of policy. Uh, The areas are climate change, education, criminal justice reform, health care, the economy, and immigration. And there are several big names that a lot of you might already know uh, that are on each task force or on some of the task forces. Uh, One of them, which I'm sure most people know, is uh, Representative Alexandria Mm Ocasio-Cortez. She has been put on the task force regarding climate change.
1: And is actually co-chairing it.
0: And is actually co-chairing it, yeah, exactly, with uh, uh, John Kerry. Mm-hmm. um so i feel like what, you
1: could not pick two people that are better representations of the like progressive young side of the party and like the establishment like yeah. moderate side of the party unless you actually put biden and bernie themselves on the <laughs> task force <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah it's kind much. of amazing with like yeah.
1: both with good records on climate change and yeah. like making that a pretty top issue but like Talk about walking the line there.
0: Yeah. Um, so let's talk about climate change for just a second, because I, I do want to make sure to talk a little bit about healthcare as well um, and some of the other ones. But uh, let's let's talk about climate change specifically. So there's one very important point that I want to make about uh, climate change. Another person who's on the climate change uh, task force is Varshini Parkash. Um, and the reason why that's important is because she is currently the executive director of um, and co-founder of the Sunrise Movement, um, which was uh, which is a major climate change uh, progressive group that um, that helped to create the Green New Deal to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why it's important that she's on the task force is because the Sunrise Movement had initially given Joe Biden an F rating <laughs> for his platform on climate change. So. It's clear that his decision to put her on the the task force is him saying, we're going to do better. We're going to make sure that we do better in order to to actually take comprehensive steps against climate change. I really don't see him putting Prakash um, or AOC on this just to ignore them. Yeah. Um, and these are these are honest people. These are people that we can trust. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're making suggestions to people that we might be a little bit skeptical on, but I really don't think that they would have agreed to be on it if they thought they would just be ignored.
1: Yeah. And also, like that is part of this, um, you know, the makeup of these committees, which I thought was really exciting and encouraging. So overall, the group is made up of of forty eight members um, for these different task forces. And it's a mixture of not just legislators, but labor leaders and economists and academics and activists. So you're getting like an educated group of people that are, that are, you know, have a a relatively diverse set of expertise, all passionate about these particular issues that they're studying and making recommendations on. So you're not just getting the establishment um, or the entrenched political perspective. You're also getting academics and activists and and things like that, which is like encouraging for how informed, how detailed, um, and how thoughtful the recommendations for the party platform will likely end up being.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's let's move to healthcare for just a second. So uh, healthcare is another task force that we talked about. And uh, a big name in person that has been put on here from the progressive movement is representative Pramila Jayapal, who is also a co-chair. And the reason why it is big that she's on this task force is not only did she endorse Bernie Sanders in the primary, but she actually wrote the house version of the Medicare for all bill, which was even more aggressive Mm -hmm. than Bernie's proposal of Medicare for all. So, She is going to be there making sure that whatever uh, they end up deciding on, whatever they end up deciding as the policy uh, as the policy to put on the platform and for uh, Joe Biden ultimately to call for is going to be as close to Medicare for all as possible. Now, I have no delusions. It's not going to be Medicare for all. It's uh, it's that's just not going to happen for. So anybody that thinks that uh, this means that Biden's going to um, capitulate on Medicare for all, he's not going to Mm -hmm. prove me wrong, but Joe Biden, (laughs) seriously, please prove me wrong. Uh, But that's not going to happen. But there is a lot of iterations of uh, healthcare reform between what Biden proposed in his public option, which still leaves like several million people uninsured and Medicare for all. Now, there are a lot of people that, Uh, make the point that, no, we need Medicare for all. That's what we need to fight for. You're either for Medicare for all or you're against Medicare for all. And to an extent, there's something to be said about that. Um, It is absolutely true that ultimately we do want to uh, significantly reduce the role of private insurance in the United States because uh, the more we reduce the role of private insurance, the more choice we have in our healthcare. Now, I know that choice is often thrown around as why you keep private insurance, but that's actually a complete ploy by the, the healthcare company in order to try to distract us from the fact that um, the difference between uh, what type of insurance you have is the difference between, do I pay with my left pocket or my right pocket? So the important reason why a single payer system promotes more choice is because there's no such thing as something being in or out of network. Mm-hmm. So you can see whatever doctor you want, not just the ones that are laid out in your healthcare plan, because there is no in or out of network,
1: Oh, I don't care who my doctor is. I just want Blue Cross Blue Shield.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyways. Um, I just the love important... their
1: billing platform, you know? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so, so the important point is um, there are ways in which uh, having Pramila Jayapal on the healthcare task force could make the final proposal, I mean, not perfect, mm-hmm. not what we need, not what we want. But significantly better. So she could push for uh, automatic enrollment for people that are uninsured. That would be huge. That would be universal health care. Now, it wouldn't be the ideal universal health care, but it would be universal health care. Um, she could push for something maybe closer to what uh, Tulsi Gabbard proposed when she was running, which is kind of a single-payer plus program, which is uh, which still leaves the option of insurance open. So it's basically Medicare for All, except uh, insurance companies can still cover things that are covered by the single-payer. Mm. But it's still significantly closer to uh, to the Medicare for All that we really need. So this is how we get closer to achieving that goal yeah. in a reasonable amount of time at this point, because I know I understand that a lot of people are disappointed about the fact that Joe Biden is the nominee and not just because of like personal reasons, because of policy reasons. I know I'm disappointed in it. I know that, you know, Michael is pretty disappointed in it. Um, but at the end of the day, You do need to recognize that the next president of the United States, barring anything from COVID related complications or any other unforeseen events, the next president is either going to be Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. Those are the choices. We might not want those to be the choices, but those are the choices. So we do need to recognize that between those choices, how are we going to get closest to what we want to achieve? And I, I understand that a lot of people are skeptical about this. A lot of people are thinking, you know, is Joe Biden just going to just going to take the recommendations from these task force and just throw it in the garbage? Uh, or even is Joe Biden going to run on them and then get elected and then not try to implement any of them? Is that going to happen? And, and the fact of the matter is that's completely possible. But I do want to read the words of a very prominent and well-respected figure within the progressive movement. And that's Noam Chomsky. So Noam Chomsky said to The Intercept, quote, with a Biden presidency, the activism of a popular movement will make a difference. Trump's probably immune, but Biden will be open to it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's super important because the movement around progressivism is not about electing a candidate. It's definitely not about electing Joe Biden. And it was never about electing Bernie Sanders. The movement is about trying to put forth policies. And ultimately, I don't really care if it's Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden that makes the policies happen as long as they happen. And... I think that Noam Chomsky is making a really good point to say that we have a chance of getting some of these passed with Biden. We don't with Trump. Yeah. But the other important point that he's making is that the activism does not stop on election day. That if we get Biden elected, as soon as he's sworn into president to be the president, we have to be on top of making sure that he fulfills these promises and hell, Let's try to push him even further. Mm-hmm. Let's let's keep trying to get him to um, to get him to uh, concede on Medicare for all. So there are three steps towards concessions on policies. The first one is rhetoric. The second one is personnel, and the third one is policy. So on rhetoric, he has been changing his tune. Uh, so he act- has actually said about the task force, "quote." It will be essential to identify ways to build our progress and not to simply turn the clock back to a time before Donald Trump, but transform our country. And that is that is an important change in rhetoric, because previously he was saying things like nothing would fundamentally change. And his rhetoric kind of focused on let's go back to how things were under Obama Mm because weren't things so great under Obama. So that's an important change in rhetoric. So the second one is change in personnel. So. We're seeing that through this task force, and I, I, I even think that uh, we should take the next step in that. Uh, in fact, um, uh, the people from uh, PodSave, PodSave America, uh, John Favreau and uh, Dan Pfeiffer, made the point that in order to go even further, they should appoint uh, someone from the Bernie world onto the actual campaign, such as Rocana. I would love mm-hmm. to see them do that as well. but the final step is policy. And some people might argue that, that rhetoric doesn't matter and personnel doesn't really matter as much either. And maybe, I, I would actually disagree that personnel doesn't matter because at the end of the day, um, personnel is who has the ear of the of the leader and that does have a massive impact. But we have the rhetoric, we have the personnel. We have to be activists if we want the policy. Yeah.
1: Yeah, ultimately this is a really good sign. Like this is Biden showing that he's planning to do what he's made his career doing, which is trying to build coalitions of people um, around certain issues. And that means that he's gonna be open to some of these more progressive ideas to Gnome's point. So I think it's really encouraging that he's got these people on the task force. To Nathan's point, it'll be up to us to make sure that they follow through. Um, But it does seem like he's starting to get it. I mean, he said in the statement discussing this task force, quote, will be essential to identifying ways to build on our progress and not simply turn the clock back to a time before Donald Trump, but transform our country. So literally, like, you know, his whole rhetoric during the primary was, "Eh, let's just go back to Obama. That's going to be like the best. And now he seems to finally be getting that that is not enough. Yeah. And that's a big sign.
0: Mad credit to Bernie Mm -hmm. for, um, building a movement behind his campaign in order to basically force Biden to talk about this, but not just to Bernie mad credit to those that supported him, those that followed him, those that supported the policies and those that have made sure that those conversations get included in the democratic party, because establishment figures to Noam's point are often empty vessels mm-hmm. um they do what it takes to get it to stay in power and if it's necessary for them to listen to the will of their party in order to stay in power they'll do it now maybe it would be great if we had people there with actual principles that we're going to fight no matter what but
1: better to have no principles than the wrong principles <laughs> so let's go with that <laughs>
0: i don't i don't know if i agree with that (laughs) but um but if if we are talking about for if we are talking from a a utilitarian point of view of um what is the final outcome then yeah so we have a chance of getting some of our priorities passed with joe biden we do not have that with the Trump.
1: And now we'll round out the rest of our episode with our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week?
0: My highlight this week is an absolute no brainer. I finished grading. I finished my classes. I turned in the rest of my grades for my university students. And man, was that a weight off my shoulders. It Mm -hmm. has been a rough year. Like it's, it was, it was my first year as purely a teacher like not like not just a student as well but like a teacher Mm -hmm. um so it was rough getting used to that in the first semester and then the second semester i was like yeah i got it i'm on my game and for the first half of the semester i was and uh uh, then i had to learn how to become an online instructor in over the course of weeks and um that was difficult Mm -hmm. but all of that's over and i could not be happier
1: that's awesome, dude! Congratulations.
0: What about you, Michael?
1: Well, one of them is definitely that this is our thirtieth episode of Damn. the per Spectrum. Damn. Thirty thirty weeks we've been at this. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. <laughs> so, congratulations to you, Nathan. Um, congratulations been, to you, Michael. This is this is very exciting, and I really we really appreciate it to everybody that's been listening all along. Welcome to all the newcomers. Uh, We really appreciate everybody that's been willing to tune in and hear our voices um, every week. Shout
0: out to any of my uh, former students that I just recently told about this podcast, if you're now listening to it for the first time. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. And my other highlight
1: is just a really nice weekend. Went for a long bike ride, got outside, breathed fresh air. Uh, It was just excellent to kind of, you know, break the monotony. So, yeah. And with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum and you'll hear from us again.